is here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Numbers 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. American Marxism is on the rise. Merrick Garland, the Attorney General of the United States, is now using the Department of Justice's Criminal Division, National Security Division, Civil Rights Division, Executive Office for U.S. Attorneys, Federal Bureau of Investigation, Community Relations Service, and Office of Justice Programs. He's using all of them to unleash, to unleash against parents and taxpayers in local communities who are protesting local school boards. I challenge anyone that tell us the federal authority that this Attorney General and the rest of his band of reprobates has to interfere in local school boards, to nationalize school board meetings. Local police officers and school board security officers are in charge of keeping the peace in township and community school board meetings. Not the Federal Bureau of Investigation, not the Criminal Division of the Justice Department, not the Civil Rights Division, not the U.S. Attorney's Office, and on and on and on. Let alone the National Security Division. They have decided, ladies and gentlemen, that those of you who protest are domestic terrorists. Are domestic terrorists. The letter from the National School Board Association, in my view, was an inside job. They wrote this letter to the President of the United States, Joe Biden, on September 29. And five days later, including the weekend, we get a memo from the Attorney General of the United States, dated yesterday, to the Director of the FBI, the Director of the Executive Office of U.S. Attorneys, the Assistant Attorney General Criminal Division, It states, in recent months, there's been a disturbing spike in harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence against school administrators, 
board members, teachers, and staff who participate in the vital work of running our nation's public schools. While spirited debate about policy matters is protected under our Constitution, that protection does not extend to threats of violence or efforts to intimidate individuals based on their views. To intimidate individuals based on their views. What does that mean? It means nothing. There's no federal law that says, quote-unquote, you can't intimidate individuals based on their views. It's done all the time. That's exactly why Media Matters has been set up. That's exactly why all these crazy-ass left-wing groups are chasing down politicians. Intimidate individuals based on their views. What does that mean? Threats of violence. If there's a threat of violence, first of all, what does that mean? There are threats of violence, and then there are threats of violence. And if there are threats of violence, state and local law is what addresses it. Not federal law. It goes on, threats against public servants are not only illegal, they run counter to our nation's core values. Oh, here's a threat to a public official. You're so pathetic, I'm going to make sure that you never serve on this board again. Now, what does that mean? That means I'm trying to defeat them at the election, right? No, no, no. You're threatening to harm them. Those who dedicate their time and energy to ensuring that our children receive a proper education, well, they're not. In a safe environment, deserve to be able to do their work without fear for their safety. Fear for their safety? Fear for their safety? Maybe Mr. Garland ought to go into the inner cities of our country and ask teachers if they fear for their safety. In many cases, from their students, these crime-ridden schools. It's not the protesters that they have to fear for their safety. The department takes these incidents seriously and is committed to using its authority and resources. It has no authority to discourage these threats, identify them when they occur, and prosecute them when appropriate. In the coming days, the department will announce a series of measures designed to address the rise in criminal conduct directed towards school personnel. There isn't a rise in criminal conduct directed at school personnel. There are parents and taxpayers who are furious, furious with the way their children are being abused, with genderism, with racism with anti-capitalism, with anti-Americanism. This is what happens when a Department of Justice at the top levels is populated with radical kooks. Coordination and partnership with local law enforcement is critical to implementing these measures for the benefit of our nation's nearly 14,000 public school districts. 14,000 public school districts. They give a a little over a dozen examples of what they're talking about, none of which is a federal offense. 14,000 public school districts, millions of teachers, tens of millions of parents, and this is the best they can do. I'm directing the FBI, working with each U.S. attorney to convene meetings with federal, state, local, tribunal, territorial leaders in each federal judicial district within 30 days of the issuance of this memorandum. No local police force should meet with these people. None. This is the same Department of Justice 
that is federalizing local police officers and undermining local police officers. These meetings will facilitate the discussion of strategies for addressing threats against school administrators, board members, teachers, and staff. We'll open dedicated lines of communication for threat reporting, assessment, and response. So in other words, if any school board member, any educational bureaucrat, any teacher, anybody, any staff member thinks they're being quote-unquote threatened, there's going to be a hotline. And so they'll send the FBI out to interview the parents. They'll send the FBI out. You know what this reminds me of? The East German Stasi. Of the East German Stasi. The department is steadfast in its commitment to protect all people in the United States from violence. No, you're not. Their murder rate's through the roof. You haven't done a damn thing about it. You're not at all. The border's wide open. You haven't done a damn thing about that. Violence, threats of other forms of intimidation and harassment. Intimidation and harassment. The purpose of this is clear. It is clear. It is to send fear through our communities all over the country. Fear through parents. Fear through taxpayers. To suppress your First Amendment right of free speech and assembly. To suppress your right to question your elected representatives. It is undermining your right to protest. And you can even yell at protests. That's legal too. The fact that the United States Department of Justice under this clown Merrick Garland has decided to intervene to effectively nationalize school board meetings because they got a set-up letter from this left-wing National School Board Association is a threat to this republic because if they succeed, we have then ceded our classrooms and our children's education to the Democrat Party, to the NEA and the AFT, the teachers' unions, and to all the freaks and frauds and their ideologies that they push on our students. No say on what's in the textbooks. No say about what's uh, in training. No say about what goes on in the classroom. Because you are a persona non grata. You are considered a threat because one phone call away to calling in federal authorities to question you. Because one of the educational bureaucrats feels threatened. More people should show up at school board meetings than ever before. Nonviolent. Remember Gandhi. Nonviolent. But yes, expressing yourselves. Expressing yourselves. More people should show up than ever before. Peacefully. Nonviolently. Unlike Antifa. Unlike Black Lives Matter. Unlike all the other nutjob groups on the Marxist left that have done severe damage to our cities. This is clearly intended, intended to threaten you, to threaten you. Talk about intimidation and threats. That's what this is. The federal government has absolutely no legal authority, none, to be monitoring any of this, to be involved in any of this, period. 
This is totalitarianism. That is exactly what it is. That's what it is. Christopher Rufo of the Manhattan Institute, senior fellow, has been on top of this for years. And if it wasn't for his tweet, I wouldn't even have seen this memo. He'll be on in just a moment. We'll be right back. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Chris Rufo, senior fellow Manhattan Institute. He's been on top of this critical race theory issue for years. Uh, Chris, thank you for all that you've done and all that you're doing. You know, this National School Board Association letter, I was an old school board member when I was 19 or 20 years old. This board represents nobody. This looks like an inside job. They write a letter on the 29th with all this, these allegations, a very few examples. Um, and uh, to the President of the United States, and then within five days, the Department of Justice issues this Stasi-like memo. What do you make of this? Yeah, I think it's absolutely clear from the timing and also the context that uh, school board officials, as well as the National Teachers Union, including uh, Randy Weingarten and the NEA, which represent uh, millions of public school teachers, they're starting to lose the argument about critical race theory, about masking in schools. And so they're realizing that they have to take more heavy-handed measures uh, so they reached out to their longtime partners, people who are willing to do their bidding in the Biden administration. And you see immediate compliance and then immediate celebration from the School Board Association president, from the National Teachers Union president. Uh, this is a very clear politicization of the Justice Department, of the FBI, of the Office of the Attorney General, to send a very clear signal. Uh, if you're protesting against the authorities in your local area, uh, we're going to monitor you. We're going to suppress you. We're going to chill your speech uh, and and your very basic rights of speech and assembly. Uh, I think it's very concerning, and I'm, I'm glad that people are starting to take notice and push back. You know, uh, Chris Rufo, uh, I don't know of any federal basis for the Department of Justice to be involved in this at all, do you? Yeah, I don't. And uh, Senator Hawley from Missouri asked the Department of Justice point blank, is there any precedent for the FBI to intervene in local school boards. Uh, and the, the Department of Justice admitted that there's not. But there's the, even uh, really a deeper problem here, uh, that if you look at the justification or the pretext for these aggressive actions, they actually looked through every example cited by the School Board Association. They only produced one example of actual physical violence, an aggravate, aggravated battery in Illinois, 
which is condemnable. You shouldn't be uh, conducting aggravated battery, battery against anyone. But it's hardly the pretext for turning uh, dissent at school board meetings into domestic terrorism. Uh, and they're actually being very clear with their intentions. They said, we want to now prosecute school board dissent as, de- as domestic terrorism using the Patriot Act. Uh, this is a brazen, unconstitutional, and frankly, outrageous abuse. Uh, I- I'm, I'm shocked that it's gone uh, this far, this fast. You know, uh, when you tweeted this out, my wife sent it to me. I, first, I didn't believe it. I said, is this a fake tweet? And we went back and looked. My God, it's not a fake tweet. This is unbelievable. I just want the American people to understand how far this goes. This is, this is saying that if you appear at a local school board meeting and you protest, and one of the individuals you're protesting, the school board or teacher or staffer, so feels intimidated, there's going to be a hotline for that person to call federal authorities, and they may well send the FBI or somebody to interview you. Isn't that right? That's how I read this. Yeah, I think if you read between the lines, that's absolutely right. This is a a suppression tactic. Uh, They're taking a false pretext that there is kind of mass violence at school board meetings, uh, which has not been proven. It's absolutely false. And using it to basically cast the net. And they're saying that this is a federal, state, local, tribal, uh, and territorial coalition of every law enforcement agency in this country covering all 14,000 local school districts. They're usurping local control, and they're going to assert federal authority into every nook and cranny. Uh, And then school board officials, union officials, uh, can then report it to the FBI, who who could be knocking on your door. And that's the message they're sending. They're taking the January 6th political strategy and now trying to apply it to more and more areas of American life. And we know full well the thugs that run these, these teachers' unions, my words, uh, because in my view that's what they are. They are certainly capable of calling in federal law enforcement against parent teachers, uh, excuse me, parent organizations, even monitoring parent organizations. Are you able to hold on till after the break, Chris? Yes. All right, we'll be right back with Christopher Rufo. And uh, I'm like a Doberman. I'm not going to let this go. We'll be right back. This is the show the New York Times is afraid of. Mark Levin. Call him now at 877-381-3811. Christopher Rufo, it looks like uh, the federal government, all these entities, I mean the National Security Division for crying out loud and other entities at the Department of Justice, they're going to be involved in monitoring social media, postal service mail, I mean... That was the request from the National School Boards Association. I should tell people that this is a very left-wing, mostly Democrat organization uh, that doesn't represent a lot of school boards, but then claims to do it. So they talk about how they need help, that they need threat assessments. Um, These acts of malice, violence, threats against public school officials have increased. They request joint expedited review uh, from the Department of Justice, virtually every federal agency that has any aspect of any kind of law enforcement. But it looks like they're going to be monitoring people, monitoring social media. They specifically raised the United States Postal Service. Threats are made through that as well. This is, this is a huge uh, act of totalitarianism, in my view. Your, your thoughts? 
I think that it's important to understand how the narrative has progressed. And if you look at the history of this fight over critical race theory, uh, the left has always struggled to accurately define and then inaccurately define its opposition. Uh, and for a while, they tried to maintain this fiction that critical race theory isn't in schools, it doesn't exist, it's only in legal seminars, which is absolutely false. We've disproven that. Uh, then they upped the ante and started calling people who oppose critical race theory, people who protested school boards, uh, racists and white supremacists, arguing that opposition to critical race theory is, quote, white backlash. Uh, and when that didn't work, we have now have new polling data that shows that um, a strong majority of all racial groups in the United States, white, black, Asian, Latino, now oppose critical race theory in the curriculum. Uh, they've decisively lost the argument on the merits. So they're going and escalating one step further to this domestic terrorism label, which they're now trying to paint on on parents and hardworking people all over this country. And that's a crucial it's a crucial twist because calling someone a racist undermines their moral credibility and allows you to attack them on moral grounds. But now calling them a domestic terrorist actually turns that person into a criminal. And then you can use the apparatus of the state to destroy that person, not only morally, uh, but physically uh, through, through interrogation, through incarceration, uh, through arrest, through persecution. And they're setting the table for that. Uh, we'll see if they actually go all the way. Uh, but it is deeply concerning uh, at this early stage. So the parents out there and the taxpayers out there, what do you recommend they do? At this point, we have no choice but to double down. Um, Obviously, uh, you know, refrain from violence. Go there with the best arguments. I've put together a critical race theory briefing book on my website at ChristopherRufo.com, giving parents the language that they can use to be successful in making their argument. Uh, But we have to double down. You can't be intimidated by the federal government. You can't be intimidated by the administration. Uh, We have to make a principled case. We have to tell the truth. And we have to stand firm in our convictions that uh, the public is the ultimate authority over public institutions, not the bureaucrats at the teachers' unions, not the bureaucrats at the National School Board Association, and certainly not uh, the corrupt agents at the FBI, uh, the, par- the parents and American citizens have to reassert the very basic premise of our republic, uh, that the voters, that the taxpayers, the families are in control of our institutions, uh, because if we lose that, we lose everything. Uh, and I just hope that people are now inspired to redouble their efforts and get out there, uh, because this is our, our country, this is the fate of our kids, uh, and nothing is more important uh, in our in our country right now. And if we fail here, Christopher Rufo, at the local level, we will never have a say in what goes on schools, period, ever. Uh, the unions, the Democrat Party, the educational bureaucrats, they'll determine everything, everything. And furthermore, a, a power-hungry Department of Justice or administration will expand this kind of suppression far beyond uh, school districts. So it's very, very important that people, in a nonviolent way, I would argue, show up in mass, make your statements, make it clear that you reject what's taking place here. Uh, also, I think uh, we're going to need some of these nonprofit legal groups. Uh, should the federal government intervene to challenge them immediately and to take them to court and to defend parents and so forth and taxpayers here? But on a bigger scale, Christopher Rufo, is it not amazing to you? that the Democrat Party is utterly silent about all of this? 
it, it is amazing in one sense, but it's not amazing in another because they're able to play this political shell game uh, where they have seemingly neutral institutions, formerly well-respected institutions, uh, do their bidding for them. They don't have to get their hands dirty. And as you suggested, the goal here is to federalize education, is to create a literally, in the memo that released by the Attorney General, a federalized coalition of law enforcement, FBI, uh, federal agents to now police the speech and assembly of parents in all of our 14,000 local school districts. Uh, it, it can't be left to stand. Uh, it is a deep threat to our system of federalism and local control. Um, and the end game is clear. The Biden administration's department, Secretary of Education uh, said it last week, said parents should not be the primary stakeholders in their children's education. Uh, they want to replace parents with federal bureaucrats. That's the end game. That's what we have to stop. That's what's at stake. What is your website if people want to check it out? The website is ChristopherRufo.com, and if you scroll down, you can read the Critical Race Theory Briefing Book. It's a free resource showing parents and elected officials exactly what's happening in the schools and giving them the language that they need to make a good argument at their local school boards. Mr. Producer, put those on uh, Getter and and uh, Parlor for me, please. Put his uh, website, Christopher Rufo's website. All right, keep up the fight. We're going to continue to monitor this ourselves. Thank you very much. All right, thank you, Mark. All right, take care of yourself. Unbelievable what's taking place here, America. I don't care what party you're in. This should concern you enormously. What's taking place here? I want you to listen to this. Um, here's Senator Hawley at the hearing today. The Deputy Attorney General of the United States, Lisa Monaco, happened to be present. Cut seven. Go. Is parents waiting sometimes for hours to speak at a local school board meeting to express concerns about critical race theory or the masking of their students, particularly young children? Is that in and of itself, is, is that harassment and intimidation? Is waiting to express one's view at a school board meeting harassment and intimidation? As the Attorney General's memorandum made quite clear, spirited debate is welcome, is a hallmark of this country. Um, it's something we all should engage in. And no, I don't think so, Ms. Monica. With all due respect, it didn't make it quite clear. It doesn't define those terms, nor does it define harassment or intimidation. It talks about violence. I think we can agree that violence shouldn't be condoned or looked aside from in any way, swept under the rug at all. But harassment and intimidation, what did those terms mean in the context of a local school board meeting? I mean, this seems to in the First Amendment context, we talk about the chill, the chill to speech. If this isn't a deliberate attempt to chill parents from showing up at school board meetings for their elected school boards, I don't know what is. I mean, I'm not... I'm not aware of anything like this in American history. We're talking about the FBI. You're using the FBI to intervene in school board meetings. That's extraordinary. Senator, I have to respectfully disagree. That is not what... Point me to an instance. The, the Attorney General's memorandum um, made quite clear that um, violence is not appropriate. Spirited public debate on a whole range of issues is absolutely what this country is all about. Um, then why is when it being investigated if, by the FBI? If, it is not. When and if um, any um, uh, situation turns to violence, then that is the appropriate role of law okay, enforcement. That's not what the memo says. You're a liar. I'm disgusted with all of you. You're a liar. 
While spirited debate about policy matters is protected under the Constitution, that protection does not extend to threats of violence or efforts to intimidate individuals based on their views. That doesn't say when and if any situation turns to violence and its appropriate role of law enforcement to address it. It goes well beyond that. And you're going into threat assessments, which means you're going to monitor people's social media. You're going to monitor the social media of of parents groups that are trying, taxpayer groups that are trying to push back against the left and the unions in critical race theory. You're a liar, Monaco. Absolute liar. It's much broader than that. That's number one. Number two, if there's a situation where there's violence, that's local law enforcement's jurisdiction. The Federal Bureau of Investigation has no such jurisdiction. None. These are not federal buildings. These are local and state facilities. Everything related to these schools, state facilities, local taxpayers. The Department of Justice has no role whatsoever. It may try and concoct one, but it has none. Cut eight. Go. All I can say is this is truly extraordinary. I think you know it is. It's unprecedented. You can't point to a single instance where anything like this has happened before. And I think parents across this country are going to be stunned to learn, stunned, that if they show up at a local school board meeting, by the way, where they have the right to appear and be heard, where they have the right to say something about their children's education, where they have the right to vote, and you are attempting to intimidate them. You are attempting to silence them. You are attempting to interfere with their rights as parents and, yes, with their rights as voters. This is wrong. This is dangerous. And I cannot believe that an attorney general of the United States is engaging in this kind of conduct. And frankly, I can't believe that you are sitting here today defending it. I intend to get answers to these questions. You won't answer my questions. I'm going to get answers to these questions. Mr. Chairman, we need to have a hearing on this subject. We need to hear from the Attorney General himself. He needs to come here, take the oath, sit there, and answer questions. We have never seen anything like this before in our country's history. And frankly, I, I want to say I think it is a dangerous, dangerous precedent. He's excellent and right on, Senator Hawley. This is like the East German Stasi. And this guy, Merrick Garland, pretended to be a moderate. When Obama nominated him, you knew he was no moderate. He is a radical, like every other senior person in every senior position in this department of injustice. And when we come back, I will give you additional thoughts on what I think we, the people, should do. I'll be right back. Mark This book, American Marxism, was more prescient and more on point than I originally thought when I completed it. But you're surrounded by this. And if you look at the final chapter, chapter 7, and you look specifically on page 254, and those of you who have the audio, you understand, and those of you who don't have it, I would strongly suggest you get it and pass to as many of your neighbors as possible. This This is truly a turning point. I point out in every school district in America, local committees of patriotic community activists must organize, as some are already doing. Among other things, they should get involved in virtually every aspect of local public education. We can no longer leave the education of our children and the well-being of our community to the so-called professionals. 
As we've learned, especially since the pandemic, the educational bureaucracy does not have the best interests of our children as their top priority, and consequences for such an attention are disastrous. What shall be done? Number one, the community committee should ensure that members attend every school board meeting to make certain that the public's interests and that of the students are being served, not the monopoly interests of the teachers' unions. Marxist activists and other special interests. By this I mean hundreds of patriot activists showing up and being heard at every school board meeting throughout the year. The classrooms and schools must be taken back by the community. Number two, the furtive nature and practices of local school systems must come to an end. Community committees should examine classroom curriculum, textbooks, teacher training and seminar materials, the teacher's contract with the school district and school budgets. Where there's resistance by the school boards or school administrations to providing transparency, which is likely, activists should use local and state freedom of information procedures and other legal tools to gain the information. Persistence is key. If necessary, seek the services of a local lawyer in the community who's willing to voluntarily assist in assessing the information. While it may be necessary to approach national legal groups for help, the goal here is to create a permanent local presence and voice of community committees in your school system to counter and monitor the school board's educational bureaucrats and unions that have had free run and total control over education up to this point. Number three, community committees should insist that contracts with teachers' unions prevent teachers from using classrooms and abusing academic freedom to proselytize or indoctrinate students about CRT critical gender theory, or other movements within the Marxist orbit that have suddenly been imposed on our students. No more brainwashing of your children with racist hate and contempt for their country. Teachers are paid to teach, and by teach we mean objective, factual, scientific, mathematical learning. More school administrators should be on notice that you expect them to ensure that the teachers they oversee in the content of course curriculum are appropriate. For example, students should be taught history as written by real historians, not the widely condemned and discredited 1619 Project, which is CRT Pablum, if they're incapable or unwilling to run a tight ship in this regard, they should be removed. Number four, private attorneys and legal groups are joining together in lawsuits against CRT training and teaching in public schools, arguing discrimination on the basis of race and color, in addition to sex, gender, and religion, in violation of Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title VI, and Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, and the creation of a hostile educational environment based on compelled discriminatory speech and the perpetuation of racial stereotypes. Community committees, parents, groups, and other patriot activists should file their own lawsuits against as many school systems as possible that practice and oppose CRT racism and other Marxist-related ideologies. The Legal Insurrection website, founded and operated by Professor William Jacobson, provides some helpful resources, and I provide that information. Parents Defending Education is one of several grassroots organizations, and I provide that link. Number five, in states where there are friendly legislatures and governors, community committees should urge them to pass laws preventing the indoctrination of students and training of teachers in the ideologies of the various Marxist-related organizations. Some states, but not nearly enough, have passed such laws. American patriots should demand that state law require schools to teach students civics, the foundational principles, and the Declaration of Independence and Constitution. School systems receive significant state funds. This is another way to hold them to account. Now, I will continue after the top of the hour with a few more items that I have here. In other words, um, 
We need to muscle up with legal groups, muscle up with local lawyers. Uh, When we go to school board meetings, uh, we should conduct ourselves appropriately. And but we should not be be intimidated at all. And I would argue that the local lawyers in some of these conservative and libertarian and just education legal groups ought to be thinking of ways to preemptively attack in court the Department of Justice and what the Department of Justice is doing. This is clearly an assault on freedom of speech, freedom of association, and federalism. The federal government has no authority whatsoever in any of these school board meetings. Broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, You know what this reminds me of to some extent, but it's worse? Remember when Obama's, of course, he had clean hands. Remember when Obama's IRS went after the Tea Party? Remember when the IRS was used to try and blunt the Tea Party? Well, now they're using even more power. The Department of Justice and all its sub-entities to target parents and taxpayers in local communities. What's being done here, ladies and gentlemen, is beyond imagination. This is clearly Marxism. This is clearly federal law enforcement doing the dirty work of the Democrat Party and the teachers' unions the superintendents and the educational bureaucrats, not to mention the school boards. They have absolutely no federal authority to do any of this, even as they try and hatch some kind of argument. They're going to monitor social media. I'm telling you what they're going to do. They're going to look at flyers that are handed out. That's essentially what this letter provides. How else do you do a threat assessment? They're going to have a hotline so any teacher union member or teacher union boss or school board member or whomever can call and say, I feel threatened. That's all they have to say. I feel threatened. Then the full force of the feds will drop on your heads. We're losing this country. And we're losing our local school systems. They're out in the open now. You have candidates like Terry McAuliffe literally running for governor saying, you parents out there and you taxpayers out there, you have no say in your school systems. That should infuriate every parent and every taxpayer in the state of Virginia and every other part of this country. Whether you're black or brown or yellow or white or red, whatever you are, that should infuriate you that you have no say 
and how your child is to be educated in a system that you pay for with your own property taxes. And the teachers unions have exposed themselves through this this virus. That they don't give a damn about your kids. And you got to see firsthand through the virtual teaching what they're being taught. And school board members aren't God. They're supposed to manage a tight ship. Not use those positions to indoctrinate your children with their bloody ideology. With their bloody ideology. So this is like the Obama administration unleashing the IRS on the Tea Party, but it's worse. This is a direct assault on the First Amendment of the federal Constitution. That is the only federal issue here. Because the federal government has no place nationalizing, federalizing school districts and school board meetings. This administration is the epitome of an American Marxist administration. Look across the board, open borders. Mandates, left and right. Now the latest is, five minutes ago I just read, that Joe Biden wants to suspend the filibuster rule for just one vote to take the cap off the debt ceiling. What that means is, they want to be able to push through his massive spending and re-engineering bill. I've been warning you about this. And of course now, we'll get to this a little later in the program, they're not even debating money anymore, as long as they can get all the programs locked in. As I explained, what, seven or ten days ago, this would be their strategy. Now I want to continue. In the chapter seven, We Choose Liberty... Now more than ever, now more than ever, this book is crucial. Not because I wrote it, because what's in it? Number six, under the education section of the We Choose Liberty activism chapter, in most communities, majority of property taxes go toward funding the local school system, and the majority of those funds are used to compensate teachers. If school systems refuse to be responsive to the community committees and the public, And if teachers unions continue to promote their own political and ideological agendas, the community committees of which I speak should organize a taxpayer revolt. The experience of the Tea Party movement will provide excellent guidance. Although teachers unions in certain states have the power to strike, the power of the purse is an important and underutilized tool in the struggle for control over public schools. Number seven. Community committees, I'm talking about setting up these community committees, should demand competition in education. The issue is what is in the best interest of individual students and the public, not entrenched school board members, teachers, unions, and the educational bureaucracy. This triumvirate always opposes school choice, including charter schools, vouchers for private and parochial schools, etc., because they oppose competition. Parents and other taxpayers should insist that tax dollars follow the student, especially now given the radicalization and politicization of our public school systems and the abuse of power demonstrated by many teachers' unions during the coronavirus pandemic. Number eight, community committees should develop and train potential candidates to run for local school boards or endorse those who share their commitment to true education reform. Number nine, 
Hopefully, community committees will be established and flourish throughout the country, making possible the sharing of information and tactics among them. Number 10, there are also steps you can take in conjunction with other groups or nonprofit legal foundations respecting the political and other activities of the NEA and the AFT and their state affiliates, which are public sector unions receiving special tax and other governmental benefits. These include filing requests with the IRS for their tax returns. Sometimes these unions and other related groups set up tax-exempt organizations. The federal returns of the tax-exempt organizations, Form 990s, are publicly available on the organization's websites. The IRS also accepts complaints filed against tax-exempt organizations for alleged non-compliance with their federal tax status, including in many cases, teachers' unions. And information can be found, and I provide you with the link to the IRS forms and so forth. And you can also use the Freedom of Information Act to gather information on the contracts, on the unions, on communications between different organizations and different groups, including communications with the school board and the federal government. And that information is available in Chapter 7, too. Look, I have no doubt that I, in this book, American Marxism, are on somebody's list in one of the cavernous hallways in the bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. I get it. There's already been an effort by the New York Times that, that I'm far right, by the Washington Post, putting me in the same sentence as the Proud Boys. I know nothing about the Proud Boys. I got it. But I don't care. We cannot tolerate totalitarian reactions to free speech and freedom of association and peaceful protest. You know, they talk about mostly peaceful protests on the left while the riots are going on, while buildings are burning. This is what's driving you crazy. This is politicalinsider.com. FBI admits it doesn't track Antifa violence. FBI admits it does not track Antifa violence in a striking admission of what appears to be a massive double standard. FBI Assistant Director of Counterterrorism, Timothy Langan, stated in a congressional hearing last week, the FBI does not track violence perpetrated by groups such as Antifa and Black Lives Matter. In a hearing entitled Confronting Violent White Supremacy, Part 6, examining the Biden administration's counterterrorism strategy, of course, not the Black Lives Matter violence. They're a Marxist organization that part of its mission is the overthrow of our country, but that's okay. Langan stated the Bureau does not consider Antifa to be an organization and therefore does not have specific information on their activities. You believe this? Representative Nancy Mace, Republican South Carolina, Carolina asked Langan about the amount of violence that groups like Antifa and Black Lives Matter have committed in recent years if those activities could be classified as domestic terrorism. Langan stated, well, we don't identify groups but individuals' actions. So if individuals are committing actions that would be in furtherance of anti-government or, or anarchist ideals, then that would fall into that category. Mason asked if Antifa would be categorized as an anarchist group in the domestic terrorism subcategory. All Langan could muster was that individuals who have associated with or identified as being part of Antifa would be classified as anarchists. But in the past, Langan has described the group as a movement. Mace went on to ask how many acts of violence or domestic terrorism Antifa had committed in the previous two years. Langan, top 
A top FBI official stated, since we don't categorize Antifa, nor do we calculate or collate information regarding Antifa, that movement. We don't have that. But we can provide you information on anarchist threats and cases in general. Mangan added that there have been 75 arrests made for anti-government, anti-authority activities in the last two years. 75. Now, this says everything you need to know. This says everything you need to know. You can see the Attorney General of the United States, what a fraud he is. And all the underlings there, the radicals that Biden nominated and the Senate confirmed. You can see how this is working. Now you know how you lose a free country. This isn't theoretical anymore. This isn't an abstraction. It's reality. This memo from the Attorney General of the United States will go down in history. Go down in history as an act of subversion against the American people and the Constitution of the United States. Passing language, a few words about the right for spirited debate. That's protected under the Constitution, but the rest of the memo, it's very short, but it makes abundantly clear that what they're doing is not, it's unconstitutional. And what they're doing is absolutely shocking. This National School Board Association writes this letter. It seems to tick off all the issues that the Department of Justice felt it needed. They write it to the President of the United States. Now, somebody who worked in the Reagan White House and also the reagan Meese Justice Department for a letter to get to the White House, among all the mail they receive, or emails they receive, and work its way to the Attorney General of the United States for him to issue a memorandum within five days is an impossibility unless the National School Boards Association was already working with the Biden administration. And let me suggest to you that that's exactly what was taking place. How do we silence these parents and these teachers? Excuse me. How do we silence these parents and these taxpayers? It's no surprise the teachers' union celebrated it. Terry McAuliffe, Democrat candidate in the state of Virginia, celebrated it. All the forces of autocracy and the iron fist of the police state are very, very happy. They want to continue to control these schools, continue to control hundreds of billions of dollars, and they don't want any interference from the parents of these children. I must say, in all the books I've written, I've anticipated a great deal. I've anticipated a great deal. I did not anticipate this. The Biden administration is an administration that embraces totalitarianism. As I speak to you, my words are being monitored without question. Without question. I'm sure many people at the Department of Justice have read my book and elsewhere. 
Not to learn anything. I hope millions of you who have not yet stepped in will go to Amazon and get your copy so you understand exactly what's swirling around you. And there are lawful civil ways to push back. I'll be right back. I would ask parents across the board to join the movement for liberty and against authoritarianism. If you're a Democrat, and by this I don't mean an American Marxist, I mean a An old-time Democrat, whether you're young or old, is beside the point. You need to take a sober look at what's taking place in your country. A sober look. You know damn well what's going on here is atrocious, is diabolical. Every single day that border is open, the southern border. It's shocking. They're getting MS-13 members now. People who were deported, who had, who had raped little girls, they're catching them again and again. Is this what immigration is about, ladies and gentlemen? And the Democrat Party wants to give blanket amnesty as soon as possible. The spending is appalling, and what they want to do to this country is unbelievable. The bigger the central government gets, the less your liberty exists. It shrinks. That's the truth. And you can see what's happening with speech. Whether it's big tech or big media. And now school board meetings. School board meetings intended to intimidate you. It's unbelievable to wake up to this every day. But this is what we're facing. If you love your children and you love your grandchildren, you're not going to stand for this. There are many civil, peaceful ways to protest and to push back. Notice how we always talk about civil, peaceful ways. And I read to you the other day, right out of American Marxism, how these professors are preaching violence. They're not monitored by the FBI. Their social media is not monitored by the FBI. They're not kicked off Twitter and Facebook and the rest of it. What has become here, what's happening here now, is that certain citizens are preferred over other citizens. Certain citizens have rights that other citizens do not have. Certain citizens are to be respected and other citizens are to be disrespected. That's what's taking place. I'll be right back. The Mark Levin Show, live and national at 877-381-3811. You remember, folks, when General Milley, remember him? He was never going to comply with orders from the President of the United States should he trigger the Insurrection Act against 
those looting and burning our cities and beating our cops and killing people. Of course, we now know General Milley never had that authority. He has no combat control. Nonetheless, he made it clear through his various leaks he would never do that. He would view that as unconstitutional. Remember all that? So where is the director of the FBI today, Christopher Wray? Why isn't he speaking out and saying, I'm not going to participate in this. It's not only unconstitutional, it's worse. We're not going to trash parents and taxpayers and treat them all as if they're domestic terrorists. Where is Christopher Wray today? He's nowhere. I don't expect all the other hand-picked Garland... Biden, Justice Department officials to object. It's a cabal. Of course they're not going to object. Stick with me, folks. We're not going to just roll over on this stuff. It's just not going to happen. Man, there's so much to get to, but let me, let me do this. Just for our fellow patriots and Levinites out there. The counter-revolution to the American Revolution is in full force as I start out American Marxism. And it can no longer be dismissed or ignored. For it is devouring our society and culture, swirling around our everyday lives and ubiquitous in our politics, schools, media, and entertainment. Once a mostly unrelatable fringe and subterranean movement, it is here, it is everywhere. You, your children, and your grandchildren are now immersed in it. And it threatens to destroy the greatest nation ever established, along with your freedom, family, and security. Of course, the primary difference between the counter-revolution and the American Revolution is that the former seeks to destroy American society and impose autocratic rule. The latter sought to protect American society and institute representative government. The counter-revolution or movement of which I speak is Marxism. American Marxism. In America, many Marxists cloak themselves in phrases like progressives, democratic socialists, and social activists, community activists, etc. Most Americans remain openly hostile to the name Marxism. And this is a little bit of a a problem I have when our own people on TV and radio continue to refer to people as socialists and progressives. Socialism is an economic model. Progressive is a nomenclature that was given to these early American Marxists by themselves. We're talking about more than an economic issue, and we're talking about more than self-identification. These American Marxists operate under myriad newly minted organizational or identifying nomenclatures such as Black Lives Matter, Antifa, The Squad, and so forth. They claim to promote economic justice, environmental justice, racial equity, gender equity, etc., They've invented new theories like critical race theory, phrases and terminologies linked to or fit into a Marxist construct. They claim the dominant culture and capitalist system are unjust and inequitable, racist and sexist, colonialist and imperialist, materialistic and destructive of the environment. Of course, the purpose is to tear down and tear apart the nation for a thousand reasons and in a thousand ways thereby dispiriting and demoralizing the public, undermining the citizenry's confidence in the nation's institutions, traditions, and customs, creating one calamity after another, weakening the nation from within, and ultimately destroying what we know as American republicanism and capitalism. Keep in mind, I wrote this book eight months ago. 
that there should be no mistake that various leaders of this counter-revolution are increasingly outspoken and brazen about who they are, including bands of openly Marxist professors and activists and so forth. And it goes on. Because this is what we're dealing with. A memo like this from the Attorney General of the United States doesn't just appear. This is based on an ideology. We must crush our opponents. We must change the voting system so they can never win. We must flood the country with individuals, particularly ethnic groups, that have a huge majority voting once they get citizenship for Democrats, meaning keep the Cubans out. We must, despite the thinnest of majorities, fundamentally alter our economic and societal systems. We must destroy local police forces and replace them with a national, federal law enforcement that they control, as you can see right here. And I can go on and on and on. We must promote racism as opposed to unity. We must push Marxism as opposed to Martin Luther King's colorblind society. We must destroy the normalcy of the nuclear family. We must destroy our economic system under the notion of climate change and the Green New Deal. We must centralize our decisions among politicians and bureaucrats who are tied at the hip. The teachers' unions first, the students last. The trial lawyers first, the public last. We must subsidize our brother Marxist Democrats that run these cities, run these states, and run them into the ground. We cannot have contrary voices. We cannot have peaceful association and protests. Conformity and uniformity. If we can't get it, we must impose it. That's what's taking place in your country. One of the excellent websites, Just the News, John Solomon's site. January 6th, commission chairman once sympathized with black secessionist group that killed cops, he writes. Fifty years ago, as a Mississippi alderman, Benny Thompson defended the Republic of New Africa and participated in a news conference blaming cops for the group's violence, even as the FBI saw a group as waging guerrilla warfare. Representative Thomas chairs the Congressional Commission investigating the January 6th Capitol riot, has been a vocal critic of an event he deems an insurrection, offered his sympathy to the police officers injured that day. He's even gone as far as suing former President Trump. But as a young African-American alderman in a small Mississippi community in 1971, Thompson placed himself on the opposite side, openly sympathizing with a secessionist group known as the Republic of New Africa, in participating in a news conference blaming law enforcement for instigating clashes with the group that led to the killings of a police officer and the wounding of an FBI agent. Thompson's official biography makes no reference to the separatist Republic of New Africa. 
Thompson's affection for the RNA and its members, which FBI counterintelligence memos from the 70s warned were threatening guerrilla warfare against the United States, was still intact as recently as 2013 when he openly campaigned on behalf of the group's former vice president to be mayor of the Mississippi's largest city. The congressman's advocacy on behalf of RNA, captured in documents, newspaper clippings, and video footage retrieved from state FBI and local law enforcement agency archives, is a pointed reminder that some of the far-left figures of a half-century ago are now the Democrat Party's establishment leaders. They're past now a fleeting footnote in the frenzy's vitriol of modern-day Washington. Isn't it amazing how the Washington Compost and New York Slimes didn't come up with this information, America? Because it would undermine their narrative, that's why. For instance, Thompson's Democratic colleague in Congress and the Congressional Black Caucus, Representative Bobby Rush of Illinois, famously co-founded the extremist Black Panthers chapter in Illinois in 1968 before he entered politics. Both the RNA and the Black Panthers were avowed supporters of insurrection. And at one point in 1967, armed Black Panthers stormed the state capitol in California. Thompson, he writes, an affable silver-haired politician known simply today as Benny, is one of Mississippi's longest-serving congressmen and chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee. He dropped his NAACP-sponsored suit against Trump when he was appointed to lead the January 6th Commission. The congressman had a much lower national profile back in 1971 when newspapers referred to him simply as Alderman B.G. Thompson from the community of Bolton, Mississippi, where he became acquainted with the RNA. He was never charged with any wrongdoing in connection with the group, but on multiple occasions publicly sided with its members even as law enforcement documented how the group had engaged in violence and it was training for possible warfare. <clears throat> Just the news was alerted to Thompson's embrace of the RNA by former federal law enforcement officials and Mississippi state officials who remembered his advocacy for the group and criticism of police. And Just the News obtained video footage, newspaper clippings, and law enforcement documents from historical archives and the FBI that validate the story. That's Liz Cheney's new best friend. Now he's investigating what was not an insurrection. I told you. Certain people have certain special rights and other people do not. That's the way it's cutting. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. more civil libertarians in this country, certainly not on the left, certainly not in the American media. They breed totalitarianism and autocracy more than any other entities in this society. Or Garland and and the rest of them wouldn't dare try what they try, because they know they'll get support from the editorial page of the Washington Compost and the news pages, as well as the New York Slimes. They know they'll get support from CNN and MSNBC and NBC, ABC, CBS, they know all this. So there's really no such thing as a free press anymore. They are corrupt as hell. They'd be just as comfortable working in communist China or fascistic Russia or Islamo-Nazi Iran, uh, except they wouldn't get paid as much. 
They view the Republicans as the enemy. They view parents as the enemy. They view taxpayers as the enemy. That's why most of these Sunday shows suck and why you shouldn't even watch them, to be perfectly honest with you. That's why they try to put Fox and OAN and Newsmax out of business. That's why they try to put conservative talk radio out of business. They don't care. No big deal. All right. Let's move to the budget now. Actually, let's move to the whistleblower. I don't care about this whistleblower. This Facebook whistleblower, I told you yesterday, I don't care about this whistleblower. Something doesn't smell right. And of course, as much as I detest Facebook, it doesn't mean I have to throw in with a uh, leftist. And that's exactly what she is. What am I talking about? Well, our friends at the National Pulse, Facebook whistleblower, donated 96 times to Democrats, including to anti-primary extremists and AOC. Facebook whistleblower Francis Hogan is a longtime Democrat donor supporting campaigns for far-left extremists such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She has also donated money to activist groups actively attempting to derail the U.S. primary process that allows ordinary members of the public to beat out establishment career politicians. The National Post can reveal. Her whistleblowing has been lauded by the corporate media, a sure sign that rather than being a sole actor attempting to call out corporate abuse, she's likely backed by some hefty interests. She first anonymously leaked internal documents before revealing her identity and calling for mass censorship on Facebook, but only of political ideas she opposes. The National Pulse has thus far identified 36 donations from Haugen, it's H-A-U-G-E-N, during her time as an employee at Facebook, Pinterest, and Gigster. All the donations, which total nearly $2,000 since December 2016 have gone to Democrats, including AOC. On January 13, 2020, she sent money to Ocasio-Cortez's congressional campaign, a further contribution to her Courage to Change Political Action Committee. All endorses, all endorses will embody the ideas of racial, social, economic, and environmental justice, promises the PAC. Her most recent donation was August 4th, sending $100 to the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. And it goes on. Did you know this about her, America? And there's more. From our friends at the Daily Wire. Facebook whistleblowers, leftist activists, repped by lawyer for whistleblower behind Trump impeachment. She has a record of donations to far-left groups, they point out, of course. She's working with Democrat operatives to roll out her complaint as the same lawyers as the anonymous Ukraine whistleblower whose allegations led to Trump's impeachment, but who reportedly turned out to be then-Vice President Joe Biden's top advisor on that country. Um, Let's see here. Going on. She, uh, let's see, I'm just looking. Oh, it's interesting. So the same lawyers, apparently, who represented uh, that Lieutenant Colonel, Vindman, are involved in her representation. Mark Zaid, a group founded by Mark Zaid. So what do I give a crap what she has to say? I think I said a pox on her and Facebook. He's here. He's here. 
now broadcasting from the underground command post deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building we've once again made contact with our leader mark levin Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. One of the core aspects of this bill Biden and the Democrats are pushing is to massively increase the power of the Internal Revenue Service. Now, for people who don't pay taxes and are on the dole, that's not a big deal. But for people who do, it is a big deal. Because it's intended to, again, bully, threaten, intimidate law-abiding American citizens who actually pay the freight in this country. While people on the dole get to watch and laugh. John Barrasso, at a press conference today, cut six, go. The Republican Party is not going to allow the IRS to spy on your banking accounts. On this single topic alone, I've gotten more emails and calls in the last three weeks than I have on any other item over the last times I've been in the United States Senate. Now, what is he talking about? Well, we've talked about now for weeks, and I've done it on television as well, and that is this. Biden is proposing that any, any movement of money that is $600 or more can be monitored by the Internal Revenue Service. They can try and figure out what it's for whether it's coming into your account or going out of your account, and not just your account. It could be PayPal or Venmo or whatever it is. That the Internal Revenue Service would be empowered to trace that and to monitor that. That's not a war on billionaires, ladies and gentlemen. That's a war on you. Again, to intimidate you and control you. Go ahead. So here's what's going on. As a part of... What the president is proposing with his reckless tax and spending bill, he wants to give $80 billion of additional money to the Internal Revenue Service. Janet Yellen wants to use that money, the Secretary of Treasury, to hire a whole new army of IRS agents. She has said she wants those agents to have access to your personal bank accounts, your checking accounts. To the point where she said that any, any check that you would write or any deposit you would make for anything above $600 would have to be reported to the IRS. So the bank would have to report it, or the savings and loan, or Venmo, or PayPal, any payment made, any deposit made, over $600 would have to be reported to the Internal Revenue Service. you believe that? Go ahead. Their goal, of course, is to squeeze more money out of hardworking taxpayers. And they want to use that money that they squeeze out of hardworking taxpayers to pay for their big government socialist agenda. Now, number one, this is an invasion of privacy of American citizens. And number two, it turns bankers and credit unions into de facto IRS agents. And they don't want any part of it either. This is the topic that came up repeatedly when I was at the grocery stores in Wyoming this past weekend. The IRS is the most powerful and 
truly unresponsive or unaccountable agency of government. And they have proven they're unable to keep tax records secure. Proven it. We are not going to allow Joe Biden to give the IRS more power. We want to stop this in its tracks. I want to be able to tell cowboys in Wyoming that if they make a payment on their pickup truck or buy a saddle for their horse, they're not going to have an IRS agent along for the ride. You can see now the Republican Party is the party that is opposing the Democrat Party, and the Democrat Party is the party that's promoting flat-out tyranny and attacking your liberty and your property. Why should the government be able to monitor a $600 transaction? Why should you be reported on? They have all your health records, pretty much. Why do they need to go all the way down to a $600 transaction? I ask you this. Well, because we we need to make sure what people are doing. Just stop. This is unacceptable. Democrats will use a lot of tricks now, according to Brian Rydell, and I've talked about this myself, uh, who is an uh, expert on the budget and spending with the Manhattan Institute, a piece in the New York Post. He says, uh, how does Congress cut a $3.5 trillion bill down to one and a half by using gimmicks to hide its true costs? That is the approach that congressional Democrats are brazenly employing to make their spending bonanza appear smaller than it is. Representative Pramilia Jayapal, she's a radical nut job from Seattle, openly discussed the use of budget gimmicks over the weekend when she told CNN that our idea now is to look at how you make them funded for a little bit of a shorter time. I've been warning about this and warning about this. And I think Manchin's going to go for this. I don't think he's as tough as cinema. I hope I'm wrong. But I don't think Manchin's going to go, I think Manchin's going to do this. He'll say, I said 1.5, I agreed to 1.9 trillion, I got the number now. The number is only part of the story. The bigger story is the underlying programmatic activity that they're pushing. Progressives, I just hate that phrase, Marxists, have been abusing these gimmicks from the start. They began with a reconciliation proposal that would cost nearly $5 trillion over the decade. Then in order to cut the bill's official costs closer to $4 trillion, the bill's authors included a December 2025 expiration of the $130 billion annual expansion of the child tax credit to $3,000 per child or $3,600 for children under the age of 6. So that made the 10-year cost of the proposal appear to be $750 billion smaller. So in other words, rather than a 10-year plan, they put it at a 5-year plan. But, of course, it will not stop. Of course, no one believes Congress will actually allow the child tax credit to be reduced at the end of 2025. And Marxists have declared this policy one of the cornerstones of their long-term anti-poverty agenda. In fact, Democrats purposely selected for expiration a popular middle-class benefit they know even a future Republican Congress or president would not dare take away from voters. And he goes on. He goes on with the game. Um, so we'll see. The question is whether or not Manchin's going to hold firm cinema too. And that's a big question. All right, we'll be right back. Mark Lovin.
Welcome back, America. You know, it's always a pleasure to have Victor Davis Hanson on the program. And he has written a fantastic book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. It is a very, very important topic. You see this playing out in society today. Victor, how are you, my friend? Very good, Mark. Glad to be on with you again. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Okay. It's going to be very difficult in the time we have to really get our heads around this. But tell us what it is that you're writing about here. We've been seeing it playing out yesterday with the Attorney General's memo and so forth. Yeah, I think what I was trying to do is locate what's happening with a long history of the fragility of citizenship and how rare it is and how many opponents it has, and then trying to explain what's going on with these organic attacks on it from the bottom up, whether that's destruction of the middle class, which is so essential for citizenship, or the end of borders where you can't have citizenship without a definite protected space for custom and traditions to to, to flourish. And then this identity politics, this idea you identify by your superficial appearance. It's always been the bane, tribalism of citizenship. And then the last half of the book is the the top-down attack, whether it's the administrative state or whether it's these evolutionaries that believe human nature is changing so the Constitution should be fluid. It's what you've written about a lot. And then globalization of this idea we're all going to be citizens of the world and, and reduce our standards to the lowest common denominator of mostly illiberal states abroad. And out of that, uh, I had a big epilogue on what had happened after I finished the manuscript in uh, the last, oh, from August of 2020 until March of this year. So a lot of the things that have happened, I think, kind of substantiated the thesis. And part of your thesis is everything has accelerated now. Everything has accelerated. It's front and center. We're being whacked from all sides here. And it's very, very difficult for people to, to figure out or to focus on where this is all coming from. But you point out this has, been, this has been chipping away at our society for quite some time. The Biden administration think- yeah, is, is really the, the central point for all this now, isn't it? Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, you're right. I I think what happened is, Mark, that we on the conservative traditional side were sort of naive and we thought, well, we always have the common sense pragmatic people and we still do. But they insidiously got a hold of all the major institutions and influencers of opinion, whether it was social media, traditional media, K through 12, academia, entertainment, the professional sports, the boardroom of corporations, Wall Street. And we have those levers of influence now in this country that, that are 360 degrees. They never sleep. They're like a lidless eye. And the poor citizen, he looks around and he's getting all of these messages. You don't need a border. To the, the, or you're a racist. The, the CEO of American Airlines or Disney assumes that. Or Jamie Dimon says this about you. Or LeBron says this. Or this professor at Harvard says this. And He's beleaguered because uh, there's nobody other than the people speaking up on his behalf and reassuring him that he's not crazy, that his institutions, his constitution, his traditions, his iconic symbols of statues and flags and customs, this is all civic education. And, and we're very fragile, multiracial democracy. There's never been any in history that survived. And today, Brazil, India... They're not doing very well. We're the aberration. We've got to really nourish it or we're going to lose it. 
And yet we have all these, these efforts, as you point out, with the 1619 Project, critical race theory, open borders, that really are all intended to balkanize the nation and destroy the notion of citizenship and the notion of patriotism, right? Yeah, and they're so predictable. I mean, that was the first thing the Jacobins did, that reign of terror group that hijacked the French Revolution. They started to rename you know, the French founding dates, the year zero, they went after monuments. They went after, na- they changed names. Same thing with the Bolsheviks. They did the same thing. They Trotskyized anybody out of existence. And so these people are not liberals. They're not progressives. They're not Democrats. They're hardcore leftist revolutionaries. And they're a small minority of the population, but they intend to erase all our reference to our customs and traditions and try to convince people that this country was flawed at its beginning and it got worse through its duration. And if we if we're in, if we just are complacent, they're going to win because they don't need a majority since they have, as I said, and you've warned us, they've got so many areas of influence, education, communications, uh, you name it, entertainment. The, the book is The Dying Citizen. Folks, this really is a fantastic book, how progressive elites, tribalism, and globalization are destroying the idea of America. It's impossible to get in the fullness of this book in, a, in an interview of 20 minutes or 30 minutes, but I want to strongly encourage you to get your copy and get copies for your friends and neighbors. Victor Davis Hanson is really a, uh, a, a tremendous mind and a wise man of our time as far as I'm concerned. Now, you talk about the unelected, the bureaucrats. You look at this, this uh, Merrick Garland. They put out this memo. They're going to unleash all the, the powerful enforcement operations within the Department of Justice against parents and so forth. This is just the latest, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, he's, the, he's the latest godhead. He, Anthony Fauci, General Milley, they, all they are is uh, Robert Mueller redukes. They they left clings on these unelected bureaucratic people that are appointed, and some of them are esteemed, like a Supreme Court justice. And then they invest all of their their, their energy and trying to assure us that these are brilliant, moral, ethical people. But they all have one thing in common: they're not elected, and they're very rarely audited anymore. And they exercise enormous influence and power. So Merrick Garland has decided that. Uh, if you go stalk a U.S. senator as she's going to the bathroom and commit a felony by filming her stall, or you violate federal aviation law by going up and trying to create dissension on a plane during a pandemic, that's okay, because that exalted mean justify the exalted ends justify any means necessary. But if you uh, you're a parent and you feel the parents through their representatives control education and they want to make sure the representatives represent what they've been elected to do, then you're a threat to society. So it's, it's scary what these unelected can do. Are we more servants and peasants, as you say in your book, than we are citizens today? I think we're getting that way because we don't really have a border in the South anymore. If two million people can walk across, and the first thing they do is commit a felony by entering illegally, and the second is residing. Um, and then they're, they're given exemptions that you and I and our fellow citizens aren't. I mean, if you have COVID today, 
and you have better antibodies than somebody who didn't have it, and you do not want to get a vaccination for various reasons, Mm -hmm. you can't be in the military. But if you walk across the border, you don't have to be vaccinated. Or you you can't be a federal employee, but you can be an illegal alien without vaccination. Or you can... You can come across the border from Oaxaca State in Mexico and be eligible for affirmative action on the premise that you're part of the community of the other that suffered oppression, even though you've never been in the United States until the day you came in. So it's very complex. We don't have a border, and we're starting to retribalize the bane of civilization. We're tra- people are starting to suggest that their first loyalty is to their what they call my people, my community the people who look like me, rather than making race, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, the incidental, not essential to who we are. That, that's a retrograde idea. It's a pre-civilizational idea. Yet, boy, this administration has really pushed it. When you talk about the evolutionaries, you're talking about the people who are basically rewriting the Constitution or rejecting it all together. Explain that. Well, they feel that human nature changes and can be improved with greater investments in education, I guess science, everything from nutrition to counseling, and therefore this document is static, and it's got to reflect a better, a better world as they see it. And they can't change the Constitution through the amendment process. So they think whether it's a national voter compact by state legislators uh, just voting to reject the electoral call, they can get 270 electoral votes through the state legislature, and we won't have an electoral college. They have no reason, they have no knowledge of why we have one, so we don't have a multi-party system, and that we have rural and sparsely populated areas that are uniquely American represented. They don't care. We're one vote in the Senate right now from getting rid of of a 180-year tradition of the filibuster, a 150-year tradition of a nine-person court, 60-year tradition of 50 states, a 233-constitutional tradition of letting the states mostly adjudicate national election rules within their confines. And, you know, Mark, this is the beginning. You read law journals, and I was shocked when I was researching this book how many journal articles are calling for the abolition of two senators per state because it's not proportional representative, and that, that doesn't make any sense. That's in the Constitution for a purpose so that we're not a radical democracy but a constitutional republic, and they're going after that. They're going after the size of the House. They want to see it increase to 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 representatives. Now, Victor, we're going to hold Victor over during the break because we're not done. This is too fascinating. The book is The Dying Citizen. You can get it on Amazon.com. Ask him for middle ground? There is no middle ground. Talk with Mark Levin now at 877-381-3811. Our guest is Victor Davis Hanson. The book, fantastic book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization are Destroying the Idea of America. The idea of America includes Victor Davis Hanson, this this large middle class built up through the Industrial Revolution and so forth and so on. What is happening to that middle class and why? Well, I think there's a, it's being pulled in a lot of directions. I think globalization said we're going to uh, create a 7 billion person market for Americans who have unique skills in finance, academia, media, communications, insurance, 
corporate. And so that bicoastal elite where our universities and our capital or government is, they profited enormously. But the people in between who were muscular and did physical work, that work was sometimes offshore manufacturing, assembling, small farming. Uh, and we could do it. We thought we could mine or cut timber or raise cheap cheap food elsewhere and then we mixed cause and effect when the jobs left we said well these people were losers they didn't code they didn't go get their proper degree or credentials and so we just wrote off the interior i think that was globalization had a lot to do with it and i think the the administrative state looked at the underclass and a lot of the underclass were new immigrants and they said you know what these people are poor they have a certain romance that the middle class doesn't have the middle class doesn't have our culture so they were kind of caught in between and no one said whether it was aristotle or tocqueville you cannot have a democracy or constitutional republic or without a, a large middle class because they're the only people who are autonomous they don't look to government for help and they have an innate distrust of the leveraging and the insider uh, contacts of the rich. So they were that stabilizing force between rich and poor. But without them, you have a medieval society of, of rich and poor. And that's, I think, where we're going, unless we can get it. In the tragedy, Mark, is and if we had this conversation two years ago, you and I would be saying we're making progress on the border. It's nearly secure. Mm. The middle class wages have gone up for the first time in a decade. We finally addressed China's asymmetries. We, we are we looking at optional wars in the Middle East now that we're energy independent. So there were a lot of things that were being corrected. And I, and I was getting optimistic. And then COVID hit and the rest is history. But uh, we shouldn't have been that fragile. And I think these were long-simmering problems that, that Trump had, and the, that agenda had helped ameliorate. But they, were, they, they rested on such a thin margin of, of safety or error that it was inevitable maybe that we're at where we are. I hope not, but it's, that's a pessimistic assessment. Well, you point out that California is pretty much there. And uh, is. This, this is the sort of thing that's, that's spreading throughout the United States at some level. I think so. When Michael Bloomberg said California is the model for where we want to be, and Gavin Newsom, the governor, said during the COVID crisis that we don't want to let a crisis go to waste, that this is a chance to have government inaugurate a more progressive capitalism. Hillary said the same thing about one-payer health care systems. So that's where we're going, whether we like it or not. And when Anthony Blinken invites in the U.N. to see to adjudicate whether we're racist or not, or we're supposed to go join the Paris Climate Accord again, even though that China and India simply won't meet those those uh, benchmarks. And yet, you know, how do you have any international organization take over the sovereignty of the U.S. when half the countries in the world, at best, are illiberal? And how can you ever surrender any of your autonomy from this exceptional country to anybody uh, abroad who just isn't on the same page as far as human rights and history of constitutional government? We're the oldest constitutional government in the world. Why would we want to surrender any of that autonomy to these people who are in nations that are completely failed? Or why would people leave these countries in desperation and come to the United States, even when they break the laws, and the first thing they do is suggest that they have claims or complaints or grievances against a country they know nothing about. You know, uh, Victor, it is hard to see uh, much sunlight when all this is going on. And, you know, uh, in order for people to push back, they need to understand what's taking place. We can't be Pollyannas about this. Uh, 
Um, if we don't know what's going on, we don't know how to fight it. On the other hand, you suggest there are some positive signs. What are they? Well, I, I, as I said, we were making progress, and I think right. what we were doing is that people were becoming aware. They were becoming aware of patent theft and copyright infringement and the Wagers and this malicious and venomous role that China was playing. They were starting to see that this Hollywood elite or the Oprahs of the world or the Obamas or the Mark Zuckerbergs or the Google people, these people, that's the new Democratic Party. That are, It's a party of the very, very powerful, influential, and wealthy. And they were starting to get that. And I think they were starting to be very suspicious of identity politics. And they saw, and I say they, people of all different races, and they were starting to see that they had to be populist and nationalist to a degree because without there was no other protection of the middle class. So for all the criticism of Donald Trump by the Republican establishmentarians, does anybody in their right mind think we're going to go back to a John McCain, Jeb Bush, Mitt Romney agenda? I don't think that's possible. I think even the people who damn Trump, you know, they, they virtue signal, they damn him. They're going to run on his agenda because there's no other alternative. And one of the big, biggest things that I think has been very good, Mark, the Republican Party is now a party of the middle class. All the statistics show it, whether you look at congressional districts by income level or people per capita income, it is the party of the upper middle and lower middle classes. And that, I think that's very encouraging because that's the majority, can be the majority of the population. Mm -hmm. Where I live, Mexican-American people are about 90 percent of our population, my small rural town. And 43 percent, according to Exxon polls, voted to recall Gavin Newsom. And as far as Mexican-American males, it was 50-50, mm -hmm. which is incredible given the, the indoctrination and efforts uh, to demonize conservatives that that community has received from the Democratic liberal establishment. Ladies and gentlemen, again, I want to strongly encourage you. You can do it right now. Go to Amazon.com. You can look at my social sites. Uh, the Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. Victor Davis Hanson writes books that ought to be read. They aren't uh, silly books. They aren't gossip books. They're real books with real substance in them. And this is a book that's endorsed by, among others, Shelby Steele, Senator Cotton, and Representative uh, Nunes, number of friends of mine. So you can be really smart and read this book. You can be really educated and read this book. Or you can be all those things, but particularly motivated about what's going on in your country and why it's going on in your country. And when you read a book like this, you can try and figure out what to do about it. So I want to encourage you folks, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America by Victor Davis Hanson. Victor, this is a significant book, uh, and you say it took you from May to March to write it. Is that right? Did I get, did I hear that? No, right? no. I, that was when I was. I, I started this before the George Floyd uh, yeah. incidents, and I and I was writing, you know, more history. But it was kind of uncanny that when I picked these six topics, they became in the news every day, and so mm -hmm. then I had to stop. Uh, last year, and then I wrote a long epilogue, but I think the epilogue will show you that there's a reason why these contemporary events are happening, and they're not new, and that should give us all some reassurance that people have tried to do what the left is doing in the past, and they haven't always succeeded. There have been people who said, you know, 
we're going to stop this. And they were very successful at stopping it. And I think we can, too, if everybody will, according to each according to their station, speak out. And I think that's starting to happen. And you mentioned the school boards, Mark, and that's a, that's something that Mary Garland doesn't know what to do with. He really doesn't. The dying so citizen. I'm, yeah. I'm optimistic. I think you are too. And I, I've listened to you, and I, I you, you're. I think you're equally guardedly optimistic as I am. Guardedly, because my view is. I can't predict the future. Just fight like hell. <laughs> so, no, I know it exactly. Then, and uh, the dying citizen. This is one of the books you really need to read on top of your list, folks, by Victor Davis Hanson. You can get it at a, at Amazon.com, any major bookstore. But head over to Amazon.com. There's a lot of stupid books over there. I noticed in the top ten and so forth. You can blow those out and get this book instead. Victor Davis Hanson, I want to thank you very much, my friend, for all that you do for this country. The same here, Mark. Thank you. And be well. He's a very decent man. Uh, you know, he's, uh, he had some hardship in his family. Uh, he lost his daughter. He is he's a committed patriot. He's one of the few intellectuals and scholars who, who really puts it all out there and is trying to help save the country. You know, his prior... New York Times bestseller was The Case for Trump. I think this is a central reading. I really do. If you, if you read American Marxism and The Dying Citizen, I think you're going to be in very, very strong position. And so The Dying Citizen, head over to Amazon.com right now. Grab your copy or copies for your friends, too. I'll be right back. I'll be right back. Mark in. I've asked over at Fox that they reach out to the Attorney General Merrick Garland and invite him on my Sunday show, Life, Liberty, and Levin. Hope springs eternal. Uh, they have called the Public Affairs Office at the Department of Justice that directs you to fill out a media request form, which we did. It says they check it every 30 minutes during business hours, so they will be seeing it. It doesn't allow you to leave a message. We also emailed four Four uh, different uh, entities within the department, including the DOJ spokesperson, main press email, and two women who work in media. So we've reached out across the board to see if Merrick Garland will come on my show Sunday. I'll clear it out. He and I can have a one-on-one discussion about what he's done with this memo, as well as all other things that he's been doing in the Department of Justice. Now, he's a very smart man. He was a circuit court judge. He was going to be on the Supreme Court if the left had their way. So, uh, little old me, radio host, I'm sure he could outgun me. So let's hope Merrick Garland takes me up on my request. Let's hope so. I'll let you know. All right, let's take some calls. Let us go to Angela Erie, Pennsylvania, on the Mark Levin app. Angela, how are you? Great, Mark. Um, I have your book in every form. Um, It's wonderful. And um, we have formed a parents group in Erie, Pennsylvania, in response um, to what you have written um, and some other things that have come up, um, along the way. Um, but we also, um, I'm considering running for school board. Uh, I'm a former educator. Um, however, 
in speaking with some parents, especially since yesterday, um, we're concerned. We don't want to become mm-hmm. targets like um, the people sitting in prison um, mm-hmm. from January 6th. Um, we're, uh, you know, we I, face I think if you people- show up in large numbers and you're civil, and you're civil, you can still hold signs, you can still speak your minds, it should be fine. It should be fine. Because the goal here is to intimidate. But if you show up in extra large numbers, and, uh, and you conduct yourself in a civil way, and you can strongly object to what they're doing, oppose what they're doing, call them out on what they're doing, explain what these different uh, Marxist movements are all about, make sure you have people there who have iPhones who are videotaping the entire thing, um, more than one person. They should be videotaping the, uh, the school board, videotaping security, videotaping uh, the audience and so forth. I think you'll be fine. Okay. Still think we should do, I should do it, huh? <laughs> I think, yeah, I would. I mean, uh, when I was okay. a school board member, we put up with a lot more than what I see these school members putting up with. And uh, whenever I ran to the FBI or wrote a letter demanding that the feds come in, that would have been absurd as it is today. But I know there are legal groups, as I speak, who are trying to figure out a way to, uh, uh, to stop this uh, before it gets too out of control. I don't know if there's a way right out of the box, but people are looking at this now. All right, Angela, don't hang up. I want to send you a signed copy of American Marxism. Don't be scared to run for your school board. Don't be scared to run for your school board. Go ahead and do it. And we need you folks on the school board. But you see, folks, you see what's going on. These intimidation tactics are disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. Brandon, Tucson, Arizona, XM Satellite, a law student. How are you, Brandon? I'm doing well, Mark. How are you? Well, thank you. Well, I wanted to bring up, since we are, are talking about Marxism, I'm currently a student, and every day I'm inundated with Marxist philosophy. If we're not talking about Marx and Engels, we're talking about Jean-Paul Sartre. Mm-hmm. Um, and it flows out of their mouths that my professors and some of the Ph.D. students like air. They just cite it as if it's just commonplace philosophy, and they, they actively berate and diminish Western philosophy from Plato to Aristotle to some of the modern uh, philosophies. Unbelievable. And it's, it's, really, it's really demoralizing because mm-hmm. you feel alone in this case because if you speak out, you'll be punished. Um, one of the students brought up that uh, maybe we shouldn't reference Karl Marx because he equated him to, frankly, Adolf Hitler. I see no difference between communism and fascism. They result in the you know degradation of the individual, and millions died. It's mm-hmm. and he was punished academically, and yeah, they they pun- they lowered his grade, or they made sure. He, yeah, well, Brandon, I want to send you a signed copy. Don't hang up. Well, what's troubling there is you have a Republican governor, Republican legislature. What they ought to do is claw back funds from these institutions. That's one of the things that must be done. Ladies and gentlemen, we salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters. We do not forget our citizens in Afghanistan, ever. Stick with us, folks. Be strong, and I'll see you tomorrow.